Hey, Art of Power listeners, I just wanted you to know that this episode may be inappropriate uh, for some of you. We discuss suicide, rape, and drug addiction, heavy topics, even though we discuss them sometimes in lighthearted ways. Every comedian has one elemental joke that they're spending a lifetime retelling. So my elemental joke is, I don't belong here. Hmm. Margaret Cho, an elder stateswoman in comedy and pathbreaker. She began touring the stand-up circuit as a teenager, dropped out of school, and at age 23, created the very first TV sitcom about an Asian-American family. It was an adventure with many missteps. I was missing the um, historical context, the social, political arena, the um, invisibility that Asian Americans were dealing with. When you're dealing with invisibility, it's really hard to put words to it because you don't even know that you're there. You don't even know that you're invisible. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, American comedy icon, feminist, and queer grandmother of sorts, Margaret Cho, deconstructs the past as both survivor and historian, and also inspiration to so many Asian American entertainers. We discuss the unique opportunity she stumbled upon as a young person of color in Hollywood, how she saw the situation back then, and how she sees it today. I missed the young, beautiful girl that I was, and I can't believe I didn't see it. She also gives us a comedy mini masterclass. So if you want to get better at being funny, or just understand why no one laughs at your jokes, Stick around. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Margaret Cho starred in the first Asian-American sitcom on network TV called All-American Girl. It debuted in 1994, and Margaret played a fictional version of herself. Margaret Kim, the rebellious daughter of Korean immigrant parents, living in a multi-generational home in San Francisco. Grandma, what are you still doing up? Oh, I have a trouble sleeping. You know that's pornography. <laughs> Free your willy. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> And it bombed. Mm-hmm. Was it fated to do that? I don't know. I think there's a, there's a lot of elements regarding the failure of that show. Mm-hmm. And after the show went off the air, we didn't see another Asian American family for almost 20 years. Yeah, it's, it's really stunning to me how long it took mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. back on network TV in this country. Yes. And to deconstruct it a little bit then, Margaret, 
Could you, in a nutshell, describe what do you think went wrong? Well, I, I think what went wrong was I wasn't prepared as an artist. And immediately when the show was canceled, my thought was I didn't lose enough weight. Mm. Because that was such a pressing point of my appearance on television was conditional on how much weight I was able to lose before the show premiered. I see. They told you, you're not thin enough to play yourself, so you got to get thinner. Yes. Uh-huh. I got to get thinner. And this was the era of the shows that were out were Friends, premiered the same season. You know, it was supposed to be about sort of regular girls. With eating but disorders. Of course they, they were so thin. And I think people don't even acknowledge that. Feminism had just started to emerge as a very normal part of society. But with that feminism, you were put into this arena of you have to be thin in order to be feminist. Like that, that is like, we'll accept your feminism. We'll accept your revolution if you fit into our uniform. Mm, and it's a size zero. Yeah. That was the beginning of that. I mean, of course it had existed mm-hmm. for a long time, but it's like, you know, Kate Moss was sort of the icon Mm-hmm. of what to look like. Um, An emaciated supermodel. Oh, emaciated yeah. supermodel. But even the Riot Girls, our feminist role models, were also kind of put to that picture of how to look, how mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, um, it's a confusing time in terms of feminism and body positivity didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so when your show wasn't doing well, you instantly took it as, I didn't lose enough weight. Absolutely. That was the only thing that I had focused on. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what were you missing that was there? Uh I was missing the um, historical context, (laughs) the social, political arena, the um, invisibility that Asian Americans were dealing with. When you're dealing with invisibility, it's really hard to put words to it because you don't even know that you're there. You don't even know that you're invisible. So it's a very strange place to try to emerge from. Even the, like the tabloids at the time would publish diets that uh, I supposedly endorsed. They would write totally fictionalized articles about how I had lost weight, mm. which <laughs> I didn't even know where this comes from. But, um, but that was the entire focus that society yeah. was mirroring to you and you mirroring back. Yes. And... So in retrospect, like if you were coaching young Margaret Cho, like, hey, girl, you're looking at the wrong thing. Stop looking in the mirror. Yes. What would you have pointed out as this is what she needed to see? Well, how beautiful I was because I missed Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) Hell yeah. I missed the young, beautiful girl that I was. And I can't believe I didn't see it. Because um, it's gone. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely embrace it's not a gone, new kind of... But okay. Well, it's, I embrace a new kind of beauty that uh-huh. I inhabit fully. Uh-huh. But when I was young, I, I could have ruled the world. And I didn't know. I just didn't see my own beauty. I didn't embrace my own loveliness. I couldn't stand pictures of myself, so I just didn't take them. There's relatively few pictures that I took by myself that... I'm very sad to have missed. Mm. You had a mentor and guide, I believe an agent back then at the time, a woman named Gail. And she's the person who came to you one day before your show, All American Girl, launched. And she told you politely, 
but directly, hey, Margaret, I hate to tell you this. I'm not skinny myself, but you got to be more skinny to play you. Yes. You listened. You went on crazy diets. Mm -hmm. You threw yourself into kidney failure Mm -hmm. because you were trying so aggressively to lose weight. What would have happened if you said no? If you were like, nah, this is how I look. I think it would have, it would have been much more pleasant for me, probably, but maybe unpleasant in other ways, you know, and I felt bad Mm -hmm. for Gail because, you know, she was sort of saddled with the task because she was woman, because she was closest to me. Mm -hmm. But I think it's hard, you know, like, I don't know, like, I, I, I didn't have the strength, I didn't have the power that I uh, perceived all these other people having power. But really, it's like, you know, when somebody's painting a portrait of you, you have to stay still and pose. You can't sort of control your own image, you know? And that's what I was thinking I had to do was control my own image somehow. And and, um, that wasn't the way to power. Could you have flexed? Could you have exercised agency in ways that you simply didn't because you felt you couldn't? I don't know. I mean... I could have possibly rebelled against it in the way that I rebelled against um, any kind of convention being a stand-up comedian. Mm -hmm. But I was in such a different world. Television was so different from stand-up comedy. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't have the confidence. That is really what struck me. You having such, in your comedy, this rebellious, no-holds-barred, here-is-who-I-am, Holy crap, is this Asian American young woman really saying these things in public? Mm-hmm. Like, I was with this guy that was too long. It's really long, really skinny, and really long, really long. I was like, what? What are you gonna check my oil with that thing? What? What? Make a balloon animal? I was wondering about the why was it in stand up? You could be so, some would say, unhinged or just raw yourself. But in that work, facing a TV deal in a network, the walls went up. I just didn't understand that the stage is a stage and it doesn't matter where you are. You can still be the same. Like I thought Mm. like, oh, because I'm going to television, this has to be a whole new world that I have to use these interpreters somehow. That I couldn't Mm. speak the language of executives and that I needed somebody... Uh, male, cis, white, to guide me, which was essentially wrong. I mean, I could see in me a different way for them to do what they were doing because, you know, Seinfeld was very popular. Um, Mm -hmm. Home Improvement was very popular. They were achieving all of these incredible goals with stand-up comedians at the helm. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to do a different take on that, which was with me. Mm Mm-hmm. It's weird, though, because I had so much high hopes for their input, but one of them ended up um, murdering his wife and putting her in the closet for a month until she had partially mummified. Oh, my gosh. That's J.J. Paulson. He, um, oh he had a deal. Uh, he, he was one of the producers of my show, and mm-hmm. he um, went on to do Bill Cosby's show. The new one, not not the Cosby show, but the the, the second one in New York, and um, eventually left that and killed his wife. Wow. And So you were trusting the wrong people. <laughs> I was trusting the wrong... I mean, okay. it's not funny. No, no, no. 
But, but actually, you have it to is, laugh. It is. Yeah. You have to laugh or yeah. else you were just like, you can't believe. Like, but the people I was putting my trust in were people like that were literal murderers. Right. Not figurative, not metaphorical, <laughs> literal <laughs> murderers. It's, it's so horrifying. Mm. But at the same time, that's the power of whiteness. That's the power of maleness. Mm. It's the power of heterosexuality. You know, that, that this idea that the cis white male author is going to write you into power. That's not the case. He's going to teach you to be you for America. Yes. <laughs> yes. This man Margaret is talking about, J.J. Paulson, he was a writer and an executive story editor on her show, and he was later sentenced to 26 years in prison for voluntary manslaughter. Margaret, who's won Grammys for her comedy albums, wrote a song about him. Well, I'm sorry. Back in the mid-1990s, the Asian-American reaction to All-American Girl was not pretty. Margaret said the show was poorly received, particularly among the elders. There was this paranoia about being perceived as um, too American, that we had lost our identity somehow in Americanness. And it's a generational thing, like the... um, generation that were rebelling against this were people who had come to America, struggled with unimaginable racism, and yet held on to their identity for themselves. And they wanted to sort of exclude the rest of the world in a sense. So the classic like immigrant protectiveness of the pure self and here this young woman is corrupting it on TV. Right. And and being a woman because Koreans are such a um, patriarchal Mm-hmm. culture you know the fact that i was a woman the fact that i was very queer already very very sexual not thin not educated and not speaking korean which you speak fluently which i do actually do yeah. now, now it's taken it's taken many korean dramas and lots of k-pop back then it was really koreans trying to keep themselves insulated from the violence the um racism the fear of being the other and the other coming in. And so Asian American identity was very um, different. Mm-hmm. And the uh, April before the show had premiered, it was um, a lot of times the first times Koreans had seen themselves on television, which was during the L.A. riots. Hmm. So they were incredibly paranoid and protective over their own image. Mm-hmm. The arena of Asianness in entertainment was that. It was Korean store owners in the film Do the Right Thing, which is Spike Lee's film. So there was a lot of things that we were sort of dealing with underneath it all. Um, Mm -hmm. The emergence of North Korea as a nuclear entity, Mm -hmm. which is a very subtle part of the um, bias against us at the network. Interesting. Um, But the sense of distrust should be there because... Yeah, the sense Mm -hmm. of distrust, the sense of fear around... Can we see an Asian-American family right now? And so there was a lot of hesitation to embrace 
my emergence as a comedian and also uh, this television show. But the younger people really responded to it because younger people who were encouraged to go into careers that they didn't want to be in, Mm -hmm. who never saw themselves on television, were avidly consuming my comedy, uh, my appearances on television because this was this lifeline. Like, oh, I could do something else. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a tough situation you were in. How old were you? 24. Uh, This all happened between the ages of 23 and 25. Right. So I really didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, you did what you could with what you knew. When your show got canceled, you went into years of highly self-destructive alcoholism, drug addiction. Mm Mm-hmm. And something that happened in that period of time is you also accidentally got pregnant. Mm-hmm. You describe in your first book, I'm the one that I want, which is a, a great title. Oh, thank you. You describe a completely crazy moment when you've gone to the abortion clinic and the abortion doctor who's wearing latex gloves and going into your vagina yes. begins to give you feedback <laughs> on your canceled show and your creative journey. Is it, yeah, he is like, you know, uh, I think that if you decide to go back into television again, that you should uh, lobby to have more creative control. And I'm like, that's fine, <laughs> but could you just kill my baby? It's funny now to think about, like, especially in... The, the scope of, like, where we are now in terms of abortion. And, and uh, I wouldn't say kill my baby now because I don't think of it as a baby. And I don't think of it as killing anything, actually. I'm going to pin that at the side because really the thing I'm interested about here is <laughs> that strange thing. I mean, did you feel like, why is the universe speaking to me through this rando? Yeah, it, it was a kind of... Um, thing of like everybody's got to have input on this because it became such a huge issue and I'm not going to be able to escape it no matter Mm -hmm. how much I try to drink it away or drug it away and um you know I actually at that point became sober for several years um and started to be uh much more addicted to stand-up comedy which really helped Mm. me out of that although my problems with drugs and alcohol which I thought had emerged strictly because of my own failures in show business, really wasn't the case. I think addiction Hmm. and alcoholism is um, definitely deep in my family, Mm -hmm. generations of it. But it's been so secretive because there's so much shame around mental illness in Korean culture. I mean, in, in all cultures, but in Asian culture in particular, there's so much secrecy and shame around it. How have you been able to stay sober for six years now? What switch flipped that helped you to do that? Oh, I just want to live. And also, like, I realized that my worth is not my work. My worth is not my, um, what I look like or what anything sort of external is. My worth is how I feel inside. And so um, focusing on that has really helped me. Like, I just have another outlook on life. Like, I would like to see it through. I would like to live more so that I can tell more jokes and so that I can laugh more. Hmm. Hmm. You wanted to live. Yeah. Which is new. That's like a new... (laughs) 
that's a new thing to come to at 52. With all American Girl, just again to sort of force a loop closure here, what do you think the show did for Asian Americans in this country? Oh, I think it really inspired an entire generation of young artists to force the idea of being seen, to allow Mm. them to have permission to be seen Mm -hmm. and to give them the possibility of being seen. So there's a lot of people that I can say were directly influenced just by that, whether it's um, John Cho, you know, Aquafina. For me, I had one glimpse of representation when I was young. That was channel surfing and catching Margaret Cho on Comedy Central. Or Bowen Yang or Joe Kim Booster or Ali Wong, uh, Hari Kandbalu. Margaret Cho, as the child of immigrants, as, you know, like me being the first generation born in this country, it hit like this is somebody who is so powerful so many amazing artists saw that and said i can see myself i can be seen and i will do that and so they've gone on to achieve incredible things whether that's crazy rich asians whether that's shang chi whether that's um you know nora is aquafina from queens whether that's bowen um you know, getting an Emmy nomination, whether that's the new movie mm-hmm. Fire Island that we just finished. It's the progress. You're it's seeing. the progress. And it's every day. It's Steven or uh, Yoon uh, being nominated for Academy Award. It's it's Yoon winning. And the Oscar goes to Jeong Jung Yoon. It's um, Nomadland. Chloe Zhao, Nomadland. It's everything, you know. So to me, all of these... I own as my achievements, which is the best. <laughs> <laughs> That's the benefit of being first. You may not have oh done it God. perfect, but you own it. What comes but next? But it's mine. Like I, you know, like I'm like, oh, I did that. Like I really am mm. very satisfied. So it's a great thing to be able to witness. And, mm. you know, I'm glad I did an OD to, mm. to be around to see it. Like literally. Yeah. Yeah. Because I could have many times. And so it's like a miracle that I'm able to say, well, I kind of did something good. So that that is really amazing. Is representing the Asian American community your responsibility? I don't know. I think it's everybody's responsibility who's part of it. No, but I mean know? part of yours. I mean, yeah. is, I guess you didn't necessarily go into comedy being like, hey, I'm going to speak for the community. But do you now see, oh, yeah, I speak for the community? Yeah, you have to, especially um, with my queerness, with my age. I am kind of a queer grandmother of sorts, and I have a lot of um, things that I still need to learn, but I also am very impressed by the way that young people have um, embraced their identities, uh, embraced the idea of, like, pronouns. Now everybody's talking about gender in a way that was never possible before. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, really exciting and new. And mm-hmm. so I, I think, like, as a feminist, as an Asian-American woman, as a single woman in her 50s, mm-hmm. very happy, it's important to talk about the joy of life mm-hmm. as opposed to, like, the way that we frame spinsterhood, 
mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. society, especially for Asian women, has been so negative. It's like, ah. I love it. I love having a bunch mm-hmm. of animals. I have so many cats. That is like the mm-hmm. best. And like the whole idea of like mm-hmm. crazy cat lady is the best existence of all. <laughs> I love it. We're going to repeat. I love spinsterhood. I that needs love to be it. Spinsterhood. I love spinsterhood yeah. because it allows me um, to dance like a spinster. I'm spinning. Like I'm spinning in a beautiful, gorgeous way. And like we want to trap women into this idea that you have to be partnered to be happy, that you have to um, have children and have grandchildren. And yet we we don't allow women agency to choose their own lives. Like every time I've shared space with anybody else, I've been miserable. Mm. And finally, like I realized over a lifetime of very um, difficult partnerships that I'm actually better as a solo act. I was thinking about why do I have such an emotional reaction to you? Like the fact of Margaret Cho. And for me... It's probably because you're an outspoken woman of color who's also very clearly a feminist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure it's the Asian American thing Mm -hmm. because I don't really think that there's any Asian American solidarity. Mm -hmm. Like, I wish there was. I don't think there is. Like, I think, for example, the brown-yellow divide is real. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I'm the brown, you're the yellow. And it's not like we're really identifying with each other's stories deeply. And so I guess I just sort of, you know, I I ask you about your experience in building Asian American identity and power and whatnot. And even as I ask all that stuff, part of me feels like I'm building a conversation on something I fundamentally feel is a fallacy. Mm, mm-hmm. I wonder what that is about. Like, I think it's, it's like, a, for me, like, Koreanness. It's a very combative identity because we're a country that's been so invaded. Over time, um, my family's had different names. Like, my family is, like, known traitors. Like, we Mm. pretended to be Japanese. (laughs) We took on a Japanese name. Mm. Oh, oh, okay. To survive back home. To survive. And survived being shunned by our Korean community because my grandfather had a job as a Japanese train conductor and mm-hmm. just embraced Japanese culture. He, uh, up until his death, was far more comfortable speaking Japanese, far more comfortable reading Japanese. So is it basically that you think that like the whole notion of solidarity and shared identity is something that intergenerationally we fought in order to survive in yes. a colonial warfare context? Yes. So we've been practicing not having solidarity for so long. It's hard to have it here. Yes. And then, so when it's like the South Asian, East Asian, like divide, we've got to Mm -hmm. come together. Like we don't have the luxury of separating ourselves anymore from other Asian communities. We just don't. This is like a big thing that's happened this week is there's a Korean drama out that just came out with the biggest stars called the squid game. And Mm -hmm. one of the stars is Pakistani. He's a Pakistani uh, Korean. And it's a very big deal to show solidarity between 
South and East Asian communities coming together in the mm. show. Like, it's very deep. And so mm. when Korea is acknowledging it, you know it's very big. It's like, we have to do it. After the break, as a teen, Margaret Cho worked as a phone sex operator, specifically for callers new to America. And we would read out these sort of like sensual monologues that had very simple sentence structure that could be understood by somebody who was just learning English. I am a sexy girl. My name is Susan. I have blonde hair and blue eyes. This is Art of Power. I'm Artfei Shahani. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hey folks, your host Arthi Shahani here. We have decided to start, drumroll, a newsletter for the Art of Power community. An exclusive place for invites and access to myself as well as guests featured on the show. Subscribe at wbez.org slash AOP newsletter. So I grew up and um, would be at the bookstore you know, in this, like, brief time, like, it's probably, like, nine, and seeing guys dressed up in, like, cowboy outfits and policeman outfits and coming from their hometowns, all coming together, uh-huh. rolling racks of gay romance novels with, like, uh-huh. a young man um, next to a river with, like, jean shorts and a blue tank top, uh-huh. and they'd be, like, cobalt would be the title. It was all color-based, Blue Boy and Cobalt. Margaret Cho's parents, who migrated from Korea in 1964, tried to do what a lot of immigrant families do, build an all-American life. They did it, though, not by moving to the suburbs, but by running a gay bookstore in San Francisco. They owned a gay bookstore called Paperback Traffic. They uh, purchased in 1976 and sort of began operations in 1977. Around the same time, Harvey Milk was coming into quite a lot of power. And this is a very exciting time in gay politics and San Francisco politics because it was after Harvey Milk and before AIDS. Mm. Very brief period Mm. of time where you had um, this sense that, like, being gay was it. Margaret loved hanging out at the gay bookstore. Her parents encouraged it. My parents really having um, a sense of like needing to push me off into the company of gay men because they really know what art is. They know what music to listen to. They know what you should be wearing, what you should be saying, what you should be doing. So they pushed me into uh, this arena of culture. They were like, these guys are going to teach you to be American and cultured. And highfalutin, you know, Uh like... They're going to give me an overview of class. Like the original Queer Eye? Yeah. Okay. Like 70s Queer Eye. When do you then identify as queer? I think it was before I knew what it meant because I was always very attached to my female friends 
always had crushes on other girls, always had a sense of immense suffering around female mm. relationships. With boys, I would just um, beat them up. <laughs> and, like, and so basically you're saying you, you basically always knew you were queer? I think so. I just didn't mm. have a name for it. And mm, I, I feel like that's almost like why my parents pushed me into these relationships with gay men because maybe they would be able to understand something that my parents couldn't. Oh, so do you think your parents actually had a sense before you could verbalize it of like, oh, our daughter is queer? Yes. And these, oh, interesting. And these men uh-huh. will know more about it than we do because we can't possibly begin to understand how to make this right for her. Also, my father loves male attention because uh, South Korea's <laughs> greatest export is male beauty. And mm. <laughs> and he's very handsome. <laughs> okay. And so he uh-huh. he doesn't really care about female attention, but he revels oh. in male attention because men really know what's gorgeous. So uh. he, he all of the guys that work for my dad were in love with him, and they would paint portraits of him that are still hanging oh. in his home today. So it's either his own vanity and or compassion for his daughter. I, okay. think, it's, I think it's a combination. <laughs> As a teenager, I believe you were like 15 years old, you worked as a phone sex operator yes. specifically for callers who wanted to learn English and jerk off at the same time. Yes. Um, <laughs> Explain that very particular niche. So my friend Jerry, who recently passed away, she was mm-hmm. like the friend that could get you in all the trouble. And uh, she got us this job because we were both working at FAO mm-hmm. Schwartz, which is a big toy store. And she was the court jester, and I was the raggedy Ann. And then she got another job at the phone sex operating place. We were like 15. And so first we started in this big room with cubicles where all these women were sitting and talking on the phone, Mm -hmm. you know, making sounds with, you know, give me that ass. Show me that ass. (laughs) Like slapping. Unlike headsets. Slapping. (laughs) I was terrible at it. But we sounded white. So they brought us to the recording booth at the end of the cubicles. Uh-huh. And we would read out these sort of like sensual monologues that had very simple sentence structure that could be understood by somebody who was just learning English. So it was, I am a sexy girl. My name is Susan. I uh-huh. have blonde hair and blue eyes. It's more interesting for some than Scott can run. Yes. Scott is a dog. Got it. Yes. Okay. It was uh-huh. very simple, um, very uh, structured English, uh-huh. uh, but would end in some kind of heavy breathing. Why is that the job you were motivated to do? Well, I was trying to do whatever I could to avoid getting a, you know, a job that was stuck me into a schedule because I wanted to do stand-up comedy. You wanted flexibility. Yes. Margaret Cho understands comedy in a way most of us do not, but would like to. I asked her to give us a mini masterclass and... Her responses are brilliant, as you're about to see, though also in some places, it's quite hard to listen to. She has jokes about both suicide and rape. 
Comedy is the unexpected breath from the unexpected thought. So comedians really are the master of a misdirected idea. You'll sort of think you're coming along one way and then something else will come in. So that's what a comedian will do is is take you into a channel of thinking you weren't prepared to go into, which causes an unexpected breath. So that's a laugh is surprise. Mm-hmm. And so a comedian, it's almost like you're kind of like an aerobics instructor or a yoga teacher. You're like mm-hmm. causing somebody to breathe unexpectedly. That's mm-hmm. basically the breakdown of what a comedian does. Making people take the unexpected breath. Yes. Interesting. Part of it too is that every comedian has one elemental joke that they're spending a lifetime retelling. So my elemental joke is, Mm. I don't belong here. And Mm. uh, so every joke that I tell has some element of, I don't belong here, and that's what I'm kind of disseminating. Like somebody like Jerry Seinfeld's... I was literally just going to ask you, what's his? His elemental joke is, why? (laughs) So every mm. joke he tells has some element of why. <laughs> mm. Like he's a questioning kind of comedian. So everything he does is like a query into what is this? Why is this going on? Why? Right, right. What makes a joke a good joke? Um, I think the more unexpected the thought. So it's um, – this is probably the darkest joke that I um, – have told is uh, one I was really um, in the depths of drug addiction and I actually hung mm. myself mm. from my shower curtain rod. I mm. hung myself and as I was hanging, the shower and curtain rod started bending and I was like, oh shit, I'm too fat to kill myself. <laughs> oh my I got to get down. I'll try again when I reach my goal weight, which means I'm never going to kill myself because I'm never going to reach my goal weight. So that's an example of <laughs> and a very literal, I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> but I am. That's dark. Yeah, it's dark. But it's also like the unexpected thought of like, it's actually very life affirming. It's like, well, <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> I can't commit suicide I'm because ne- I got to lose weight. I'm first. never going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And you actually had that thought when you were t- yes. when you were attempting to take your own life. Yes, huh. <laughs> and it was huh. something that made me laugh. Like I actually laughed out loud. And so, literally, your sense of humor saved your life in that. Oh moment. yeah, and it does all the time, you know, because mm-hmm. when you can find that optimism, which for me is my humor. It's like my way of surprising myself with my thinking, then I can keep going. And uh, sometimes when I tell that joke, people get super upset Mm. because they're Mm. stuck on, you didn't give me a trigger warning. You know, like Mm. there's a trigger warning. But the the idea is like, I can't give you a trigger warning because the whole point of it is just to sort of blast this truth. So yeah, it's just to disarm you. There is a time where, where you told some very dark jokes and it did not go well. Mm Specifically around rape. Yes. You have been 
repeatedly sexually assaulted. Yes. Starting as a child. Yes. Through your young adult life. Yes, and I think that's really hard for people to uh, laugh about. I mean, it's it's hard for anybody to laugh at any that kind of suffering, but at the same time, you have to be able to talk about it in a way that mo- motivates you to heal. Mm-hmm. You know, when you expose wounds to the air, they'll heal. So the the real thing is to be able to uh, skillfully detonate the bomb without actually bombing. You know, it's, it's a very... <laughs> without you bombing. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah, a yeah. very uh-huh. um, delicate uh, sort of procedure with tweezers and a stethoscope. <laughs> Can we deconstruct the time that you bombed with, I'm calling it the rape set. I don't, I don't know what else to call it. I did a show and it was in a club that I was like not prepared to talk so openly about these rape jokes. I was I was like like the joke is um, I uh, was raped by a relative when I was very young and I told my mother about it and she said. Oh, yeah, he already uh, raped your aunt, so you're not special. So that's like, (laughs) that's, to me, it's really funny. But it's really upsetting to people to hear. I could see it as both, yeah. Yeah. Uh So when people got upset about it, I got upset. I got defensive and angry. Oh, because you delivered it and it wasn't funny. People shut down. I delivered it. It wasn't funny. People shut down. And then I wasn't able to recover. And I just started to like really kind of pound them with, why didn't you get that? You should have gotten that. I don't understand what's happening. Like angry. Think about it. If I'm doing poorly as a comedian, if you don't like me, I'm going to make you hate me. Because Mm -hmm. I'm such a um, rageful comic sometimes. Like, mm. I just, if it's not going well, like, I'll get really angry and just keep going. No, you will never get a cent of the money back that you paid. Like, you know, so it was a very combative situation. You all suck. Yeah, uh-huh. and it wasn't the right attitude to take. So then it went terribly. So you... Basically, bomb, you say you get angry at them. And then what happens? Do you just sort of walk out in a fit? Or what happened that night? Oh, I walked out. um, I think it was covered by TMZ. I felt bad because the club got a lot of complaints. And it's a club that's owned by a comedian. Mm. That's such a noble thing for a comedian to own a club. Mm. It's very difficult. It was going to put them out of... A lot of money because they were uh, competing people asking for money back. And and so it was a very Mm -hmm. tough thing. And I was in um, Hong Kong and Jerry Seinfeld called me and asked me to appear on Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. And then we talked about it on the show. Where are you going next? That one show that I bombed at, I want to go back and do a free makeup show and invite all the people who were upset and have a... That's a great idea. And then decided together to go back and um, do a show at the same club with him kind of mediating, sort of being therapist and uh, counsel. Mm. 
Using also his white male privilege, I would imagine, in some way. Yeah. Yeah. But also his fame mm-hmm. and his elemental questioning joke of why. And his mm. r- real long relationship with me. Because we've been friends um, for many, many years, since the 80s. And so when you step back into the same club now with your wingman, Jerry Seinfeld, what shifts that you turn a bad joke into a good joke? First, the experience of inviting an audience back and that I care enough about their opinion to hear them speak about it. Hello. Thank you all. You were all here the night uh, that Margaret had the show that went awry. Their opportunity to get to see him. He's one of the biggest Mm -hmm. comedian, if not the biggest comedian of all time. And to be able to redo a show for them that shows my respect for the audience and my respect for the art form, which I think mm. is a unique opportunity, but also something that I, I'm really grateful to get to do. I mean, I think it's really, it's, it's sort of a once-in-a-lifetime thing. So it's always a little edgy. Somebody yells out, somebody turns their back. It's not hard to lose it. And you're exhausted, sub-sandwich, a Korean-American threatened by white people. I didn't do my job, and so that's why I wanted to come back and say that I was sorry. She had the guts to come back to talk about it. All right, well, we would like to uh, perform a show for you. Mm. And so between take one and take two, what did you learn from that? I think that you can go back, and then you can... uh, sort of redo something that didn't sit right. And um, that, for me, is the ultimate unexpected thought, that you can actually go back and retell a story and have a better outcome. This power to redo that you've referred to actually a few times in our conversation, is that something you always realized you had the power to do, the power to redo? Or did you finally realize it? I think I finally realized it. I think I finally realized that reinvention is another tool that you can use in life. Like, things don't have to be so final and complete. Like, this doesn't have to go on your permanent record. That was always the threat when I was in school. This is going on your permanent record. But uh, the record of permanence doesn't have to be so permanent. My lessons from Margaret Cho. One, don't just look in the mirror. When you fail or succeed, you have a tendency to think it's all about what you did. Well, the environment, the context may be more relevant. Scan it. Two, don't tie your worth as a human to your success. The joy of achievement disappears when you fail, and you may not know how to get it back. Embrace your inherent value. Three, in those rare moments when you get to demonstrate your true potential, don't falter and cave to what the old guard is saying. Even when they look like authority figures, for example, a white man in a suit, they don't always know better.
This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Paloma Moreno-Jimenez, Hina Shravastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If this episode landed for you, broke your brain, moved your heart, hit subscribe. Leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends and family. And let me know what you think directly on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Arthi411, A-A-R-T-I-411. All right, see you next week. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.